Hey, joining us now is our good friend, Al Bad. Hey, good morning, Al. Hey, good morning. Good morning, everyone. I hope you are all having just the very best of days. I uh, want to say uh, thanks to everybody on the Pelican Breeze. We had, I, I think we uh, sell 55 tickets, and then we have the first mate and the captain and then uh, me on there. And It was just fun being out there. It was a beautiful day to be out on Albert Lee Lake floating around. And i got to give another shout-out to my, my little grandson. I shouldn't say little. He's uh, a... <laughs> It's 12U, so it's 12 and under. They played in the state tournament. He plays for the New Alm River Rats. They won their first four games before losing to Wyzetta 6-5 to five in the state tournament. Well, so good for did. him. Well, yeah, he had a great, uh, great tournament. And a, I got a pleasant note from 100-year-old L. Jaffe. And Al lives in New York, and that name might ring a bell with some. Al was a cartoonist for Mad Magazine for 65 years and was probably most noted for his feature, The Mad Fold-In, that came with Mad Magazine. And a lot of a lot of folks like me who uh, grew up reading Mad Magazine, and mine was thanks to my brother Donald, who gave me a subscription to it as a birthday gift, and my mother wasn't. <laughs> she didn't know what to think about Mad Magazine exactly. It was it was a little different than the usual fare that was read in our home, but uh, I thank Donnie for that. I uh, I fought the lawn, and the lawn won. Uh-oh. I bet a lot of people have had that. Now we, you know, I, I will say this about grass. Don't worry about your grass. Grass endures. It, it's going to be all right. And, uh, I, it was so hot, but I, it it grows in the, we have a lot of shady areas in the yard so it grows tall there so you have to get out and mow it and i retreated indoors plopped down in a chair and listened to a caller tell me of a wild turkey terrorizing mm-hmm. a walk-in basement window this spring of oh, her yeah. of her home an american goldfinch is currently battling with my office window and the goldfinch fights politely to my estimation a chipping sparrow had a brief tussle with a glass earlier and there were no skirmishes whatsoever featuring cardinals or robins this year a great crested flycatcher was this year's marathon brawler it fought various windows of the house for several weeks i worried it was ignoring important bird duties and it didn't reach terminal velocity while striving for world domination, but the flycatcher walloped its reflection, but its attacks have ground to a halt. And, uh, you know, I kind of miss seeing him up close by the windows, but I'm glad he's not fighting with them anymore. And I have a uh, someone call, uh, texted last week, what was a barn swallow called before it became the barn swallow? I checked, uh, I love the Oxford English Dictionary, and it dates an English common name barn swallow to 1851. So it's been the barn swallow since at least that long, although there was an earlier instance I found in an English language context in Gilbert White's book, The Natural History of Selborne, and that was published in 1789. And in that he said, White said, the swallow, though called the chimney swallow, by no means builds altogether in chimneys, but often within barns and out outhouses. And I don't think he's talking about the backyard biffy, but just outhouses around the house. 
against the rafters. So he indicated that they built in barns, but he really didn't call them barn swallows. So I'd say 1851, we've been calling them barn swallows. And where did they nest before? Probably in uh, caves. And in Europeans refer to the barn swallow as the swallow. Thomas Jefferson called it the American swallow, and I've heard people call it the country swallow. So I'm guessing it was the swallow was probably what it was called before it became the barn swallow. And the barn swallow is a national bird of Austria and Estonia. And in many cultures, a barn swallow nests on a barn is good luck. Legend, Native American legend, says the barn swallow got its forked tail after it stolen fire from the gods and given it to humans who were freezing. Angry gods shot flaming arrows at the bird, and one hit the swallow's tail, burning away the central tail feathers. And since that day, the barn swallows had that forked tail. And Peter Kalm, a Swedish naturalist who visited this country in the 1700s, wrote that barn swallows nested both inside and on the outside of colonists' homes, and the barn swallow is the most widespread of the swallows. So it's a, it's a beautiful little bird. It's the one that helps us mow lawns. I uh, heard from Bob Hess. Bob says, we have a sad problem here in our land near Luther, Michigan. We've had 40-plus bluebird boxes along the edges of our native grass fields and get a pretty good percent of our boxes filled, used by bluebirds, tree swallows, and some house wrens. This spring, summer, we've had very few bluebirds in northern Michigan. You probably know this. Spring, summer, nesting bluebird population is way down Michigan due to the the uh, on the bad weather. Uh, they were hit hard last winter in the South Gulf by cold and snow over winter. And Bob says, I'm wondering if this happened also, like in the Minnesota and Wisconsin population over winter. We have another problem on our land with some of the bluebird nest boxes last summer. That is the spring of 2020 by a bear ripping down 10 of the nest boxes and eating the babies or the eggs. The bear was able to rip open the front or sides of the nest boxes. Yeah, Bob, we have the same problem here. Talk to a friend in Faribault who has... I think 53% of what he had last year as far as bluebird population, but that's pretty good. Talked to a good friend, Gordon Hopp, last night, and he said uh, he has, uh, I think he raises more bluebirds than probably anybody in the United States. And Gordon has less than 10% of the bluebirds in his home area in southeastern Nebraska, so it really hit some areas hard. Uh, David and, well, Rita Granson said, I have had a robin fighting with a window from early spring until just a week or so ago when it quit. Always started at about 6.30 a.m. It was a very persistent robin. David and Jeannie Edwards, or Jean Edwards, said, For seven days we have watched a male indigo bunting fascinated by one place at a window of our house from dawn to dusk, it stays about a foot from the window or hangs on the lower window edge. Sometimes it pecks at the glass. Sometimes it does a circuit from a daylily or a goldenrod shaft a few inches from the window in a circle, bumping higher on the window and then returning. It sometimes stays away when we close the drape, but not always. It spooks easily 
from our movement inside making images or video hard to collect. We have seen this occasional other male birds try to attack this reflection, but never this long and persistent. Any thoughts? I'd just say it's a very persistent uh, male indigo bunting, and it's fighting with itself, as we all do on pretty much a daily basis. You'd think they'd give uh, well, up after a while, though. I mean, is it harming them when they do that? Are they getting bruises or, or battered at all or not really? I don't know that it it does any critical harm in general, but boy, it's got to batter them up, <laughs> and it so. certainly tires them out, and it takes them away from, you know, other things they should be doing. They should be eating and things and drinking water. I I worry sometimes. I watch them, and they, this great crested flycatcher would fight with a window, and then it would do that gular panting where it opens oh. its mouth and just. And I'm thinking, go get a drink of water. You know, the image will wait here. Well. I didn't really tell him I'd wait. I probably told him I lied that the image would wait there. But I said, go get a drink of water. Just, uh, you know, take care of yourself here, and then you can come back and fight when you're refreshed. So it's got to bang them up a little bit because, boy, they sometimes really battle with it. I mean, they hit the window hard and peck on it. So uh, Ed Lighting. Ed is from Rochester, said, Our son gave me your book, A Life Gone to the Birds. We enjoyed reading it. My wife and I are amateur bird watchers. Last week we went to Rice Lake State Park. We noticed the info on bird migration overlooking the lake. Do you know when the birds start to migrate to the Rice Lake State Park area in the fall? I'm 86 years old and use a walker, so limited on what I can do. Any info would be helpful. Well, thanks, Ed. You know, July begins... uh, the first real migration of shorebirds through Minnesota to their wintering grounds in Central and South America. So look for them on the shallow wetlands and mudflats. Tree swallows, I think they begin leaving a little bit in July. Uh, Sandhill crane families start coming out of their nesting marshes into adjacent hayfield and grasslands in August. Fall migrations for birds in general starts as early as August. Some early migrants are warblers, orioles, flycatchers, hummingbirds, and nighthawks. But the peak is probably still normally in the second half of September. All oh, this is this been a odd time. This has been a really odd year as far as timing of things. So, but I'd say the second half of September there, Ed. So good luck to you. Uh, Michael Bonner said, I'm getting a few giggles here watching the young birds learning. The downies are learning the pecking order, pun intended, of who gets to be on the suet. So while they are waiting, they decide to try the grape jelly at the Oriole feeder. Hey, if it tastes good, what the heck? The young Oriole is at the correct feeder, but he's pecking at the jelly. He can see behind the clear plastic instead of accessing the aperture. The young Blue Jay, unable to access the seed feeders because of his weight, goes straight to the jelly. I've seen Mrs. Rosebreast of Grosbeak have a taste of the jelly, but she was not impressed. Aside while watering the garden this morning, I heard a new bird sound I did not recognize, a very rapid trill and a descending pitch. Puzzled, I stood very still and then realized it was the pressure escaping from my pressurized sprayer. It takes all sorts. Uh, Eunice Hatley of Albert Lee has a pigeon with leg bands. And you got a, a postcard from John from New Ulm? I did. Uh, it, it was a Kleenex box postcard? You, you know, he makes them out of cereal boxes. He makes them out of movie 
adds, and this one is a so soft facial tissue, unscented, soft and strong, thick and absorbent. <laughs> it says compared to Kleenex brand tissue, and it's 162 ply facial tissues. And he writes, <laughs> he writes on he uh, he writes he writes so fancy, and then has a little smiley face. So yeah, I love his postcards. He makes them, uh, you know, out of reusable cardboard things, and and it's such a great way to. Uh, to reuse things that, I, you know, you don't have to buy new paper. You didn't kill any more trees. So, yeah, he says another fancy Kleenex box postcard for you. And he said, uh, let's see where I'm, I'm trying to read here. He wrote a little note. He says, uh, talking about his dad's again. He says uh, last week at his dad's in Andover, he saw a woodchuck running around his yard. It's been a long time since I saw one. He says, I'm sure Al knows this one. Why did the dolphin cross the beach? I do know this one because you sent me the, uh, <laughs> the the stuff. So yeah, uh, to get to the other tide. Yeah. So. Yeah. And yeah. I wanted to say something about woodchucks. Now, I've never seen a woodchuck around our place, but I, when I was gone on vacation, I had a, a gal, a college gal, water my gardens, and the neighbor lady flagged her down and asked if she was my gardener. Of course, you know, I don't really have a gardener, just somebody to water it. But then she said that she doesn't want to to do some of her stuff because she doesn't like the woodchuck there's woodchucks and that's what she's afraid of and so my the, the gal that i had she says i don't know are woodchucks dangerous and i said i i don't know i've never seen one so uh, i guess let let us know are woodchucks dangerous do we need to worry about them what what might they be doing in our yards yeah, no, I don't believe they are dangerous. I guess everything, if you go out and grab one, it might oh. bite you. But uh, I've grown up with uh, woodchucks or groundhogs or whistle pigs, whatever you want to call them. And so they've been a, pretty much a constant in my life. And uh, I've always got along fairly well with them. They have, uh, they have bothered my garden on occasion. Well, what do so, they like but, or what do they do? I guess I really haven't noticed them on mine yet. Yeah, anything green and tender. Oh. I guess they like. Yeah, and I, I guess they will go out in the farm field some and eat a little bit. I don't know that we ever had them uh, bothering. Our biggest problem probably in the the ag fields were deer mm-hmm. along the edges eating things. And I know some folks that uh, farm near water have problem with Canada geese coming up and eating corn when it first comes up because corn is a grass so it's just right up the alley for those guys but yeah i i think a groundhog is you look how much weight they put on in a short time those young groundhogs i think they eat just about anything they love climbing up into our mulberry trees and eating the leaves how how big do they get i guess i'm trying to think of like compared with a Oh, I don't know, a muskrat or something. Are are they? They're bigger than a muskrat and much smaller than a than a beaver. Oh, so they're in between those two. Uh, people tell me they make wonderful pets. I don't recommend. Oh. There's a you know, there's a lot of things you can get from the Humane Society or somewhere. You probably don't need to get a a, a woodchuck. Uh, but they're they're cute. I, I like seeing them, and uh, like I say, about all they bother here. They the biggest problem probably for most folks is uh, that they tunnel near buildings. Now, what kind and of tunnels are they? The kind that make the mounds, or just holes, or do they go by the foundation, or you know, because there's different animals that can. Uh, you hear different stories about different animals doing different things. So I'm wondering what what do they, they primarily do? They like to go near foundations. Okay. 
and they go down quite a ways, and they're holes to me. Maybe it's just my the ones in that live around me are odd. I don't know, but they never make a, a round hole. It's kind of an oblong shaped. Uh, it's just never a round hole that you'd think of them making. But they can. Uh, they're they're really good at tunneling. You can tell they got that little miner's hat with a light it on it, <laughs> and uh, they got the helmet on. No, they're just very good at tunneling. They're uh, they're neat animals. I, I like seeing them, but uh, but they they're not are looking for grubs or anything, are they? Because you know there's some no. some little things that are looking for grubs. You know they're they're eating our green stuff, so they're another one I'm going to have to worry about now too. It sounds like <laughs> yeah, they're they're pretty much a vegetarian, and the, again that problem is you're right. They like to go down by foundations. That's a great place. They want their burrows down in there, and that's where they. Uh, they come into contact with humans in a, not a friendly way. People don't, we don't like them digging by our, our houses and things. And to get rid of them, what are the thoughts on, you know, some people uh, say trap you, them and take them away, but I mean, are there other things to repel them at least? I, you can uh, certainly trap them and take them away. Uh, a lot of folks will throw rocks into their burrow holes <laughs> and hope that they get the idea after a while and just move off somewhere where the uh, natives are friendlier and that might uh, work. I don't know if any of those sprays, uh, I think most of those sprays are meant to put on the vegetation more than to repel a, an animal out of its burrow. So I think that's, you know, in the country, of course, a lot of people shoot them. You know, when they get to be a, a nuisance there, but that's uh, not available everywhere, and uh, I'm not big on shooting stuff, I guess, but uh, sometimes things need to be done. But I don't know of a way a dog, we uh, had dogs most of my life, and they would tree groundhogs. Groundhogs climb trees very well, and that's why the ones that are up there eating mulberry leaves all the time. And then they get up in the tree, and then the dog is about ready to leave them alone, and then they whistle, <laughs> make this whistle, which just ticks the dog off, you know, because they're taunting him. What does so the whistle goes, sound like, Al? I, I, I'm just trying to picture what kind of a whistle it would be. Yeah, just a... It's, really? It's a real high-pitched, yeah, and, and that's not a very good impersonation of a groundhog, but it's it's just a little whistle. Huh. And like I said, when I was a kid, we called them whistle pigs because well, they, they were chubby like little pigs, and, and they whistled. And our dog had amazing, amazing patience and would just stand under that tree looking straight up and would do that for hours on end, but then finally would have to give up because they needed to eat, but then that little groundhog would whistle and the dog would spend another hour there. It was just incredible. Well, when she first mentioned woodchuck, I think the first thing that came to my mind was a badger. And I know badgers, they can be dangerous, can't they? And aren't they a lot bigger? Because um, I, I was trying to picture, you know, she said woodchuck, and I pictured in my my mind a badger, which of course is a Wisconsin badgers, but aren't those kind of a more vicious kind of thing? And do we um, have them here even? I have seen badgers oh. here, uh, but uh, I see them more in other states. They're not a very big animal 
either, but they are, uh, they can be a bit cantankerous. When mm-hmm. I was a kid, we used to have them uh, out in our hay fields and stuff where they would dig up gophers. Oh. So part of the problem when we were pasturing cattle was not only the gopher holes, but badgers would get out there and dig bigger holes. And uh, we never had a cow step in one that I know of and hurt itself. But that was always the worry of cattlemen that, oh, gosh, you know, we're going to be breaking legs on cows and stuff. So they are, um, yeah, they're they're much more, if ferocious is the right word, and it's probably not, but they're much more ferocious than a groundhog. But still, they're not aggressive around humans. Badgers will run away. I watched one out in Nebraska. I had my camera, and it was out in the middle of nowhere in the sand hills, and I watched a badger watch me for hours on end, and it was like a stare down with a dog and the groundhog up in the tree, so me and that badger. You also sent me something, Karen, about uh, large flocks of birds showing up on weather radar, and I do watch this uh, on a couple of sites during migration, and it's uh, common enough that meteorologists have a name for it. It's called a bird burst, and the Doppler radar equipment register can register a big flock of birds as a storm on occasion, so it's a pretty neat thing to see, and during migration, it's a wonderful thing to see. Uh, Gunnar Berg of Elber Lee, talk about wonderful things to see, a prothonotary warbler at Myrie Big Island State Park. Bob Williams had a common gallinule in Sibley County and also a peregrine falcon in Sibley County. So a couple of great birds to see there. Jeff Stevenson, an old friend from Rochester, had a Hensel Sparrow in Freeborn County and the Eastern Meadowlark in Martin County. Doug Keezer uh, saw a Caspian Turn in Rice County. Brad Abendroth, he had a green-winged teal and a Wilson's Fallerope in Watton County. And Brian Smith, a blue grosbeak in Martin County. And Gerald Hoekstra, a Wilson's Fallerope in Steele County. That was an odd list of birds and an odd list of people because they're, they're all friends of mine. I don't know how that happened, but uh, they're out there looking at birds. I know what happened. <laughs> a, a few of these guys have retired now in the last couple years, so they're just... They're out there looking at stuff all the time. Uh, Dale Holgren of Neuritzen asked me, what is the oddest bird I've ever seen? The oddest. I told him I don't know what it is, but it roosts in my mirror. That's where I see it every day. I see this odd bird. I would think the California condor, just because the way it looks and its size in the United States, might be the oddest one I've seen. And the hoopoe. Uh, I would say the hoopoe, it's the national bird of Israel, and it's named for its call. It has a clownish appearance with a pinkish head, striped wings, a flight like a butterfly, and a stinky, really stinky nest. And I saw that for the first time in Israel and was just uh, was there, supposed to be looking at everything else but birds, but, you know, you wander off and you look at birds sometimes. A uh, listener, Karen, asks, how clean should I keep my hummingbird feeder? I guess clean enough so you'd be willing to drink the sugar water yourself. <laughs> uh, that's uh, That would be the safest way to do it. And you will get repeat customers because the typical 
hummingbird lifespan of our little ruby throats here, three to five years maybe, so you can get them back. And this same uh, listener said there's a nesting hawk in my yard that tries to catch birds at my feeder. Is it a sharp shin or cooper's hawk? Well, if we go by uh, breeding bird surveys, it's a cooper's hawk, or cooper's hawk. Uh, Sharpies will nest in dense stands of mature coniferous and mixed deciduous coniferous forests with well-developed canopies. So we don't get uh, many of them here. So it's uh, more than likely a Cooper's hawk. And all I can say, you know, it's, it's nothing personal. They're not out. They have no vendetta against you. Uh, some interesting research done by Marie Perkins, and she's an ecologist at the University of Wisconsin, Stevens Point. She studied seven songbird species for mercury levels, and six species showed increasing levels, and all six have declining populations. It's a rusty blackbird, palm warbler, wood thrush, olive-sided flycatcher, salt marsh sparrow, and northern water thrush. And the red-eyed vireo was the one species that didn't exhibit increased mercury levels, and its population is increasing. And on at wood thrush, I was at, uh, my wife and I went to Courthouse County Park in Waseca County, one of my favorite birding places on earth. And I wandered around in there, and I listened to the wood thrush call, doing that eole, or uh, a little boy once told me it was Frito-Lay they were singing. <laughs> And it's a flute-like, ethereal call. It's just, uh, oh, it's, it's exquisite. And I listened to one there for a long, long time and was just overjoyed. I was on my way to the Waseca County Fair and uh, had to stop there for a while. And, oh, I, I just, it was a hard place to leave, just hearing that beautiful sound. So I, I love, I love that park. It's a just a great place to go in and wander and they have camping in there and it's again it's a county park but what a joyous place that is i as a tour leader i took many photos uh, group photos i took a bunch of them on the boat of people uh, on sunday and there are the magic words words with weight they're used to make one smile i'd say prunes say cheese smile smile yarn candid camera whiskey lottery winners a bunch of cabbage heads and duck snort and somebody said what in the world is a duck snort well a duck snort is a softly hit ball that goes over the infield and lands in the outfield for a hit and chicago white Sox announcer ken hawk Harrelson popularized the term, popularized the term, but duck snort. So it's um, add that to your vocabulary. And uh, as my first and second grade teacher, Edra Demmer, told me, you know, if you want to learn a word, use it and use it a lot. So just try to work duck snort into any conversation <laughs> you might have today, and then that word will be yours after a while. I, I talked to somebody who's going for their physician's um, now, nurse practitioner, she's going for a nurse practitioner degree, and the vocabulary words that she has to learn in a short time for these tests and things, it's amazing, all those words, and she's struggling with the different ways to try to learn it. You know, she's putting on a tape and listening to it in her car and doing all these kind of things, and 
that uh, that'd be really hard. She said math had always been easy for her, but vocabulary was tough, and she was wondering if I had any secrets. I said, boy, the only thing that worked for me is just writing it down on paper and writing it down on paper and writing it down on paper till I'm sick of writing it down on paper, and then I've got a good chance of remembering it. I hope everyone, uh, I, I'm sh- I missed out on a lot of you good folks, but we will get to you next week, and we'll get everybody that gets a hold of me. We'll, we'll talk about what you're talking about. Um, I just, uh, there was a, a lot of them this week. Okay. I want to thank everybody for sitting on the front porch with us. You know, I was having a great day, but more research was needed, so I walked in a heavy rain because the foot traffic was light, and the minute I became completely soaked, I predicted rain. I'm a modern-day Nostradamus. When I came to a slowdown sign in New Richland, I walked faster. <laughs> no, he's a rebel. I traveled with my mobile workstation. You a lot of you probably have them. It's a pen my wife had given me and a notebook my wife, one of these tiny little notebooks that my wife had given me. Sometimes it's a pen some company had given me and a notebook that another company had given me. And I was experiencing a potato famine, and that's a week without French fries. And I, in the pouring rain, I got just soaked, folks. It was, you know, people were walking by and with their umbrellas and saying, don't you know enough to get in out of the rain while I was having an ident. And I thought of Juneau. I know I talk about Alaska a lot, but we spent a lot of time up there. And I was weathered in. I'd gotten in, but I couldn't get out of Juneau. And the late Hap Hagen of New Richland was living in and treated well at the local care center there when he said, this is an easy place to get into, but hard to get out of. And that was Juno. I'd been slaving over a hot cell phone all day. I was tired. I had circles under my eyes, down to my chin, trying to sleep at the airport. I bet a lot of you had done that. It's just it's not workable for me. And I heard a fellow say on his cell phone really loud, have you looked on the empty shelf? I think you'll find it there. I'm stuck in Juneau, Alaska for at least another day. You know, Juneau tends to be overcast. It's a wet place, but it's a beautiful place. It's a beautiful place. If you have to be stuck anywhere, wherever you are is a pretty good place to be. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you, Karen, for your fine company. Uh, Do something wild today, folks. Get out there and look at a bird. Hey, Al, great to chat with you. We'll be back with you next week. Until then, happy bird watching. Thanks, Karen. All right, bye-bye. Our good friend Al Bat, always great.